Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I'm joined by Helen and also I'm delighted to say we have with us this week Zafar Ansari, who was until about six weeks ago a professional cricketer, played for Surrey and for England. Um, he studied at Cambridge. He actually studied with us. I think I'm allowed to say that because we're very proud of him. We are. Our politics degree and a few other things as well. We're going to talk about sport. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about how Zafar sees the world now. But there are lots of reasons why I wanted to have Zafar on this podcast. And one was, I know from things that I've read, that he has the best answer to the question that I've asked quite a few guests. Back in the immediate aftermath of Trump and also Brexit, I like to ask people where they were, what they were doing on the night. And it was usually a night when the drama unfolded and what was the point when they realised that the world had changed. So, Zafar, let's let's start with Trump and then maybe we can do other things as well. How did you follow the news that Donald Trump was in the process of becoming the next president of the United States? So I was in India um, playing cricket during the, the election in the US. And playing cricket for England. For England, is- sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously India is, what, 10 hours ahead of the United States. So I woke up early on the 8th of November to, to kind of try and get a grip of what was going on. And, and to be honest, it, it seemed to have started pretty well for, for Clinton. It was 6, 7 in the morning in India time. And, and it looked like Florida was going her way. It looked like, you know, North Carolina was going her way. There were, there were various things happening that I felt quite happy about. <laughs> I then, um, you know, we had a game that day. It was the first test match against India. Um, a big game. Come on, let's uh, yeah, not be a, modest about A this. big game. You were playing in a test match. Yeah, yeah, I was playing. It was my second test match. Um, you know, I, I'd been picked. We were playing in Rajkot, which is a, you know, an interesting part of India. And then we got taken off to the match and we had you know, every game, every day of every game you hand in your phone. It's the, you know, to stop spot fixing, to stop betting, stop corruption during matches. You hand in your phone to this suitcase, you know, which is taken off and you lose all access to the world for, for 10 hours. So then I spent the next 10 hours, our security guard, they're allowed their phones because, you know, in case something bad happens. So um, and were you fielding? No, we were batting, which right. made it probably even worse because I was batting 10 and we batted really well that day. Joe Root got 100, Moen Ali got 100, Stokes was on the way to 100. So it was about the only good day on that tour cricket-wise. <laughs> so, so I was waiting to go into bat, trying desperately to find out what was happening. <laughs> and I was getting sniffers. In theory, the security guard isn't meant to tell you anything and he might get in trouble for this, but... So literally no uh, one's even allowed to tell you what's... Never mind what's going on in the world of cricket. No one's allowed to tell you what's going on at all. Well, in, yeah. You're I, meant to be in a kind of isolation you're in a cocoon, unit. Yeah, exactly. You are. I, I, I suppose that there is... If major news happens, you will find out about it. I think partly for the cricket, you know, you, it's, it's in order for you to focus your attention. I spent all day nervously waiting to find out. And then six o'clock in the evening... So did you get snippets telling you that it wasn't going the way you thought it was at the start Yeah, I mean, the states in the Rust Belt, the Pennsylvanias, all those parts, I was hearing from the security guard that that those things or those places weren't going the way they're expected to. Um, But he wasn't a political person. So he was just passing on news that he was reading probably off the feed on the BBC and giving me snippets, but not kind of cohering it. And so, yeah, I got got to the evening and looked at my phone and, and obviously the, <laughs> it, it you know it hit me um pretty hard so yeah it was it was a weird thing because you know on paper this was the most important day of my 
life in some ways, my cricketing life, definitely. You didn't go into bat that day. I didn't go into bat that you day. You went into bat the I next day. I bat the next day. So, um, so you were hit hard. So I was hit hard. And how did you do batting the next day? I actually, again, had my, which isn't saying much, but I had my best performance for England. I got 32 the next day. Maybe, you know, <laughs> I was freed of the kind of, I don't know what it was, nothing to lose now, go out and bat. And, uh, so yeah, it was it was strange. And how shocked were you? I know you're you know, you're very interested in politics. It's it's one of the, the things that you do, like the rest of us. I mean, you know, it's no secret. I think almost everyone, including everyone who appears on this podcast, we haven't really met anyone. One or two people say they saw it coming, but it was a shock. You you say it hit you hard. I mean, what yeah, I, what was the thing that hit you hardest about realizing that Trump was going to be next president? I I think that it was the fact that it more than anything seemed to conform to a set of processes that since I've been an, an adult, since I've been able to vote, have kind of layered upon each other. So I first voted in 2010, which kind of went the wrong way for me. I then voted, obviously, in 2012 in the AV referendum. And, and it was this layering of, of processes. So you kept losing. I kept losing, yeah. And I know it hasn't been a long time, you know, but I obviously appreciate that there was a lot wrong with Clinton and, you know, Clinton didn't represent the kind of the, the good, but... I found Trump terrifying on on so many issues. You know, I still do, and it felt like the culmination of this process that had been taking place for for a while. You know, at the same time, it, it was a shock, but it, it wasn't necessarily a shock because it wasn't. I follow five thirty eight dot com. I you know, I follow these websites which I think do look at statistics kind of realistically, and you know, I knew he had a thirty percent chance of winning, but but it didn't stop me kind of feeling the the pain and the the sadness I guess for 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 what and how about your teammates if you're allowed to talk about this I mean how did they react so Joe Root scored 100 and he comes off and discovers that Donald Trump is president of the United States or whoever did you have people you could talk to about it as a member of the England cricket team or did it make you feel like a bit of I I think I felt relatively isolated because it was all I wanted to talk about for a long time and did they and and it wasn't all they wanted to talk about no I mean but but they were interested they were interested to the extent that they were surprised and they, they wanted to know what had happened and they... Um, and did they look to you to explain Yeah, that? and again, that I think what I learned here as much as anything is that the more you know about something generally, the kind of the less you know about it, the less you can find a, an obvious answer to, to a problem. And, and so it was difficult to try to... Um, especially because I do think that there are lazy comparisons often made between, you know, the United States and Brexit or whatever it might be. And so just to, to follow those cliches that, you know, it's about these groups of people or it's about these groups of people didn't really fit with the way that I was thinking about it. And so even though they're the answers that you probably want to give in those situations, if you want to provide an answer, I didn't feel particularly comfortable doing that. So then, you know, the other question we asked people was about Brexit. And yeah. was that more of a shock, less of a shock for you? So Brexit would have happened, so you'd have been playing cricket for yeah, sorry so it was in the middle of a just a and we'll come on in a yeah. bit to the reasons why you've stopped but um you're playing cricket for sorry yeah. your summers i mean when you were a student here when i first got to know you you were playing professional cricket for sorry yeah. then your summers until this summer have always just been cricket yeah. right completely yeah, yeah and then politics intrudes yeah. so brexit was that a yeah brexit i mean again it took place during we were in glamorgan playing a, a one-day game <laughs> less exotic but um again it, it hit me i in a way, was perhaps more shocked even about Brexit, weirdly, because of the fact that it was predicted in a lot of ways. But it hit me again hard. Again, not not in any obviously logical or rational way. I mean, I wasn't a hard Remainer or a hard Brexit. I understood the arguments 
for and against, but I came down definitely on the Remain side. But I think I appreciate that it wasn't this doomsday that, that people perhaps took it to be. So it weirdly, despite that kind of appreciation of the, the complexities of Brexit, I still really struggled immediately afterwards with, with the result. I think I've been able to, you know, as a lot of people have, feel more comfortable about it more quickly than than the Trump situation. But, yeah. And what do you think is that? What was it that got you from like thinking, okay, I can see the arguments on both sides to this feels really difficult? Probably from a personal perspective, as a son of an, an immigrant, um, as a you know Muslim, you know, as as someone who who I think f- felt that the Brexit debate sadly went down a, a fairly xenophobic, anti-immigrant direction i felt that that mood was being exhibited in in the brexit vote even though there were lots of things that played into it and so even though that there was that complexity to it i think because i felt that that was the kind of the key underpinning kind of driver it just hit me through that lens probably and was that one where your teammates people you play cricket with were they more engaged by Brexit? I mean, that that was an issue, obviously, I, that really did yeah. cut across the country while it was going on. Yeah, and there were there were opinions going. Were there big arguments? I think, I think. I mean, were there some passionate? There were not. I wouldn't say passionate arguments, but I think what was interesting is that in terms of Brexit, you know, one of those complexities was that people who tend to be to the right, perhaps, on economic issues, obviously, often were pro-Remain or were on the side of the markets and the the economics that had been put out during the campaign. I think cricketers, you know, it's not controversial to say that on the whole they, they tend to be on the right of the political spectrum, but they are also on the whole pretty wealthy. And so they were in that weird position of being pro-Remain, but not for the kind of liberal or whatever reasons you want to kind of call them. They understood it in very pragmatic terms. Almost they, they treated it very instrumentally as a process it didn't necessarily have that same emotional impact on them but there were arguments I think this general election while I was in the dressing room also kind of listed some interesting arguments you know interesting debates because because I think wealth and income played into this election quite a lot so so those factors definitely do because one of the interesting things about cricket is as a sport in its history, the big divide in it always used to be class. You know, if, if ever there's a sport that's been associated with the British class system, it's cricket. There used to be the kind of gentlemen and the players, yeah. right? The sort of professionals and the amateurs. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, you know, there was a long period until not that long ago where there, it was assumed that you know the England captain would be a sort of gentleman and then the professionals would work under him. Is any of that still there? Because the other potential big divide would be about race and ethnicity but is is there still a class divide in cricket i don't sense a divide i think there's a you know an overwhelming public schoolboy presence in professional cricket perhaps less so with the england side but definitely where i played the majority of my career sorry you know class is an interesting term to use because i think wealth is a clearer way of kind of thinking about it you earn a lot of money as a cricketer not footballers levels of money but you earn much more than the the average wage you can earn a huge amount of money playing for England and I think that questions of of wealth and income definitely play into their thinking perhaps more than typical ideas about class 
And is there a divide between the people who went to, who were privately educated and the people who weren't? Not that I could kind of pick apart. Well, the privately educated players tended to come from, this is kind of difficult, but tended to come from schools which were, if you take Surrey, there were schools like Whitgift, Wellington, which, which obviously have a certain status, but weren't academic in the sense that the Eatons and Harrows of this of this world are. And I suppose had a different relationship with class again and with, with money. So, And were people on sports scholarships to these schools? I mean, uh, some were, some but, were but some were from, you know, middle class backgrounds already, but, but not necessarily that kind of upper middle class aristocratic. It's um, not the gentleman versus players it didn't, thing. I don't think it felt like that. That didn't take away perhaps from or change the politics in a dramatic way. I got a different kind of question about the politics around cricket because obviously one of the arguments that's made by someone like Daniel Hannan against the Britain's membership of the EU has been that Britain should be part yeah. of the Anglosphere and in some ways cricket is an Anglosphere game yeah. not on it entirely fits because America and Canada don't play <laughs> cricket but yeah. it is a They're trying actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well they don't play at a high level anyway but there is some truth in that it is an Anglosphere game and I wonder if you had any sense or any reflections on that as part of what was going on with the Brexit debates that was a, an issue that I heard a lot of cricketers talking about, which was this, I mean, it's to do with the coal pack rule, which enables certain countries basically to come from generally South Africa and the West Indies players come and can participate without being classed as overseas players. And that really has grated on a lot of people, especially higher up in, I think, the political hierarchy. And yeah, I think that in terms of the way in which Brexit challenged that and perhaps in a way subtly subconsciously was a means of, of re-anglifying cricket and if it did allow overseas players to come in they would come in from the subcontinent or they'd come in in the same way that someone from Australia or outside of the European Union would, would have to come in I think that that played into it because it's a big difference but, you know, with football when football came into the Brexit debate there was this kind of thought well, do we really want to leave the European Union because football is this mm. kind of international sport where basically people move around Europe and the best players gravitate to the best teams and many of them but there are not a lot of Europeans who no, are gravitating no. the, I mean it, so it, it is weird in that in a sense cricket is more the Brexit sport yeah yeah and, and I I think that was reflected in some of the public statements I think amongst cricketers definitely yeah one more quick cricket question then let's let's talk a bit more about you again the other thing that makes cricket really interesting is that it may be that in the 21st century, India is going to be a superpower. Mm. In cricket, India already is the superpower, right? It's a sport in which we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years, the money and the money it's generated. You say you can make a lot of money playing cricket in England, but boy, you can make a lot of money no, <laughs> playing cricket. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. You know, and yeah. people like Ben Stokes and others, these yeah. auctions. And then the administration of the game as well. India is the powerhouse now of cricket in every sense of that word. It's where the money is, it's where the game is run. Did that generate anxieties, tensions? Were people thinking about that? I, I or they see it as an opportunity? Yeah, I think, I think it felt like an opportunity for players. I think the market in India and the way that then that kind of spread into Australia and is spreading probably into the UK in terms of the design of competitions, of, of the 2020 competition meant that players were, were less concerned about what it meant for cricket um, not, not in a bad way I mean people still enjoy playing four day cricket enjoy playing five day cricket care about those things but I think the, the monetary prizes are so dramatic 
in India or because of India and the market there that 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 really opened players' eyes. And I, and I also think when I was in India playing cricket out there, the level of enthusiasm that you you do feel and it's talked about a lot and it's a cliche, but even though people don't always come watch cricket, they're still incredibly enthusiastic about the sport. And I think that cricket is dying. I think in some ways in this country and you know you look at how few people play it at a young age and so on and then you look to India and you think actually cricket I think statistically is the second most popular sport in the world and and in a way India feels like the the foundation upon which cricket is built partly because of the numbers of people there and and so so I think on the whole it's it's kind of a positive relationship. And now you've retired (laughs) uh, at the age of 25 having just played three test matches for England and there's been quite a lot of press coverage of your decision because it was a brave decision it was an unusual decision um do you want to say a bit about the thinking behind it yeah it's been interesting in the period following the retirement because partly because I think in my own head it's been coming for a long time and I've said that before but but really I never felt probably that comfortable with the idea of being um a cricketer and only a cricketer while I was at university it was very easy to say cricket was was a hobby still, even if I was getting paid for it, because I could prioritise on work here. You had to prioritise work here. You know, even while I was doing a master's, again, it was a part-time master's alongside a full-time professional cricket career. But I, I definitely, in some ways, cared more about my master's than I did about the the cricket. And then that, that went away last year. I finished my, my master's and I had to kind of deal with the fact that I was now a cricketer. That was my life. And I don't think I I wanted that. I wasn't willing to kind of direct all my attention to, to that one thing. And I realised that was what I had to do. If I wanted to continue to progress as a cricketer, I had to be more and more dedicated. And and so that was one side of it. And the other side of it was that, again, I, having been at university here, having friends who who were here and who've gone off and, and done interesting things, I, I became more and more restless to go and see what else was out there in the world. Um, and time moves very slowly when you're in that position and and even though I, I rationalised that cricket perhaps did provide me with better opportunities than uh, or better exposure than than other things it wasn't enough for me basically and so, so I was I was just keen to, to get out and do those things I enjoyed. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you first realised you were really good at cricket, as opposed to just sort of quite good at cricket, mm. which must, quite a lot of people must be, did it occur to you that if you were going to be outstanding at cricket, that you were going to have to devote your entire life to it? Or was it something that... That realisation came to you later. Yeah, it really struck me most on the England trip. You know, until that point, I had, I think, rightly been able to say to myself that not being focused on cricket made me a better cricketer. And then that that actually just wasn't the case anymore. (laughs) That that, (laughs) that, that kind of that line, which I just got used to saying, having two things. And and I believed it when I was saying it. I stopped believing and and so it, w- it was very late in the game. It was you know when I was twenty four that that this process of realization took place. But but yeah, almost as soon as it took place, I started to get worried in a way about about my longevity. And did you think your teammates understood this at a much earlier age, or do you see them as telling a different kind of story to themselves? 
the ones who've gone on and played for England and who've who've made it at that level have worked out very quickly a lot of the time. You know, two examples, Joe Root was someone I played with as a 14-year-old for, for England on the 15s. And he was, and this, this can sound bad, but he was so intense at that age. He was so devoted to his cricket. He was so single-minded. And it didn't really strike me at that point as being a particularly good thing or a bad thing it was just the way it was and, and then it you know as as I look back now 10 years later that process that he went through from that early age enabled him to I mean along with lots of other things enabled him to to be who he is now because he's now the England cricket captain and there, there has again been a tradition of kind of England cricket captains mm. and in your kind of mold so maybe not combining yeah. an academic life with cricket but Mike Atherton Mike really. Mike yeah, really, yeah, yeah. famously the cleverest person ever to play sure. sport for England in any sport. Yeah. Is that era over? I mean, so, so for instance, Kevin Peterson, I think, tweeted yeah. oh, that you were too clever for cricket, which is sort of slightly weird, <laughs> yeah. weird, barbed but thing not, to say. Very nice. Uh, <laughs> but but um, that wasn't always the case, as it were. You know, the implication being that cricket is now a sport where you really haven't got time to think about anything else. Mm. But Mike Brilly was meant to be such a brilliant captain because yeah. he was, as Ian Botham said, he was so smart on all levels. I think that sometimes the cerebral dimensions of cricket are, are overplayed. You know, I envied people who thought less about the game a lot of the time, who who were instinctive in that way, or not even instinctive, but who just didn't want to analyse their performances in the way that you can't. I think sometimes you can't help when you're being kind of expected to do that for a long time your whole life. So there are obviously figures. I say England captains, and and that's I'm, I'm sure there's a culture that it's culture dimension to that. But there was talk of me at times as a future England captain. Now I remember reading it in that mould. Yeah, absolutely. and and it was it was just wrong because firstly I was never good enough. Oh, I don't think I would have ever been good enough to play enough Test matches and be consistent enough to stay in the England team for that long. And and that's the kind of fundamental issue. But also, I I never really captained. I never really. You know, when I was much younger, I did. But for, for most of my adult cricketing life, I didn't captain. I didn't think too much about captaincy. So it's kind of, I don't think it's as, as simple as... But I think the that. space has changed too, isn't it? Because I think if Mike Brilly in the 1970s, I mean, when he first got on the England team as a player, then he was a good batsman. But mm. as a captain, he was not a particularly good batsman. No. I think he would have been dropped from the side if he wasn't such a good captain. Yeah. So there kind of seemed a sort of space for a captain who yeah. was cerebral and being some particular gist to the captaincy but that seems like not the world in which we're now in in cricket no and and the and the, the press wouldn't allow it in a sense no. the pressure is so relentless I mean I remember with Brilly there were there were murmurings that you know if he's not going to score a century soon how long can we keep this going but it feels like a gentler age oh yeah much no I, I mean Cook who's been England's best cricketer basically was continually under pressure for I guess his, his captaincy but also just just for the odd failure here and there and, and it is that intensity, that scrutiny, I think, has had an impact on, on those sorts of things. So you also talked at the time, I think it was a press conference after the India tour, about what it was like to be one of four British Muslim heritage players mm-hmm. in the team and how you know you were very proud of that. And the team kind of reflected a, a version of Britain that you don't see in lots of different walks of life. Mm. Is that how it felt inside the dressing room too? Was there a sense of that, that the England team had a particular kind of presence and way of reflecting British life which was different from some other sporting teams you know as a group of four we were a, so well, very you, aware of it Mo- Moen Ali Adil Rashid and Haseeb Hamid we, we were very aware of the of the fact that there was something distinctive about that I think each of them 
you know, and myself were also aware that role models only can do so much, I think, and, and didn't want to, I think, overplay the, the role model dimension. I think there are huge structural issues around race and class in, in this country. And so to suggest that having four, four Asian, British Asian players in the team would have a, a wider impact, I think we didn't kind of buy into that necessarily beyond the fact that it, it firstly reflected something positive about what people can do in this country and also the fact that some of them Moen Ali is quite an inspirational figure and and I think is aware that he has a certain degree of power and would you say that the the sense among the four of you including the other three was politicized or was it not I mean did it have a political charge to it particularly in the current climate yeah there was and I think it actually obviously expressed itself or expressed itself more through foreign policy and, and ideas around foreign policy amongst those three probably I think sport is difficult from that perspective because you are incredibly constrained in in what you can say and Moen Ali at one point two or three years ago wore a, a free Gaza band I think on on his wrist and was immediately pulled up on it had to had to remove it so it's it's a challenging place to be if you do think that there is something political in there or if you feel political I think um, and it's challenging for for them I think to some extent because they ne- can't necessarily express themselves to the extent they'd, they'd like but um, I don't want to put words in the mouth so I might be wrong here but there was I think a political dimension but it wasn't sort of like right well you know what's going to happen in the next election it was it was, it was Palestine it was you know the Middle East it, it was kind of perhaps what you'd expect. And do you see um, cricket as being distinctive here because I've I'm not sure I'm absolutely right about this, but I'm going to hazard that I am, that there hasn't been an English Muslim football pl- player. Yeah, I, th- I think cricket, because of its appeal in, in Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, definitely taps into that um, that demographic group. But I, at the same time, I think that cricket hasn't done a great job historically of actually using that pool of talent of, of, of people in its cricket side. So it's kind of a again the four doesn't make up for the kind of what's going on beneath necessarily we're a long way on from the the famous notorious tebbit test you know when norman tebbit said if you were british and england were playing pakistan or india you should support england and i don't think you don't hear anyone saying that now i don't think not even norman tebbit maybe he does so recently we had the icc champions trophy and the final was this great clash between India and Pakistan, an absolutely central political clash, but also in some ways political clash, yeah. with a passionate crowd of primarily British fans supporting one or other team. And in a way, it's striking now when people comment on that, that they don't think of it as political. And, and also in a context of British politics at the moment is very febrile. There are all sorts of questions that are really raw. Mm. And there was a sporting event that sort of had a whole political dimension around it. Yeah. And yet, I mean, maybe it's asking too much for the commentators to... But it seems almost as though we've gone the other way and that people are very nervous about talking about politics in this context. And they, they just yeah, want to and, say and, it's, and a, it, it's a glorious celebration yeah, of cricket. Yeah, That's sure. what they say. And I think it's weird because India and Pakistan is such a tense you oh, know, place, yeah. region at the moment. It, it's, it's extreme. And so it is strange that that didn't get a look. And I think a couple of friends I have, one... Uh, who lives in Luton, one in Peterborough, sent me videos of cars driving down the street draped in Pakistani flags with people, 
you know, out the window singing songs. So I think that it does still tap into something, you know, in different parts of the country. But you're right that it wasn't picked up on uh, in any way. So what are you going to do now that you've um, stopped playing cricket? I've got specific things. I'm going to start a law conversion part-time in September and I'm starting a job with a, a charity called Just for Kids Law in September as well who who work with young people in the criminal justice system who have immigration issues, things like that. So... So you're going to be a lawyer? Uh, so, well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give myself the chance to be a lawyer. Yeah, I think if something in the meantime takes my fancy that I'd prefer to do, then then I'm happy to, to be open to that. But I think that that law can be a, an interesting way of, of getting things done. Because there was almost sort of surprise in that Guardian profile of you. One of the themes of it was, it's very surprising, and maybe it was surprising to your teammates that you weren't as this kind of, super brainy guy that you weren't giving up cricket in order to make more money doing something else mm. there was I don't know if that was real or that was just a bit of journalistic license but the implication being that your teammates could understand your decision because they knew you have all these other talents yeah. but the assumption was that someone age 25 who's going to turn their back on professional cricket must be doing it in order to go into the city did they did they really think like that that that's probably a simplification of what they felt I think that they knew me well enough to know that that wasn't because yeah we know you well enough that it's not the obvious way i think though that more broadly and i i don't read below the line particularly i don't look at things on twitter but my girlfriend does (laughs) and uh my friends and family and they i think noticed one strain reaction which was that well you know obviously you he just wants to go and make money in the city it's it's kind of that was like to the original announcement yeah it's kind of like well you know and you know the other people who have retired early recently uh, a guy called Alex Loudon who went and made a lot of money or has got made a lot of money in the city uh, a friend of mine called Chris Jones who played for Somerset who's gone and is working as a trader or you know something along those lines it is a fairly typical route so it's not the wrong assumption to make but okay think, but they don't get because I've not heard of those two cases they mm. don't get the coverage right no Loudon did it a few years ago probably what sort of age was ago. he he was 27 28 um, he, and had he kind of peaked yeah, I mean, I mean it was similar. Like your was, decision, obviously, is that you retired just after you'd made your... Yeah. Quite soon after you'd made your England yeah. debut, which is part of the, yeah, the I drama think were, of it. There were similarities in that. He had played one one-day international for England, but probably felt that, that that was almost his limit. I didn't feel it was my limit. And so he felt that, you know, where was he going to go from there, cricket-wise? Chris Jones hadn't got to that level. He'd played a bit for Somerset, so it wasn't the same thing. A guy called Paul Best, who was at Cambridge with me here, and played for Warwickshire for a while also has, has retired early so I think a lot of cricketers who have that kind of grounding academic qualifications and so on do take that path yeah but but I suppose that for me it was as much about my other interests my other kind of concerns that played into that decision and therefore that inevitably was going to direct why I did next and the other early retirement story that is the one that got a huge amount of coverage, which is in many ways the opposite of yours, which is James Taylor, mm. right? Who had you know, was really making it as an England cricketer, and yeah. then had this you know this really awful and shocking discovery that he couldn't play cricket anymore because he had a heart condition. And he went from again being a future England captain to a week later having to retire, and now he's mm. he's working as a commentator, and that grabbed a lot of people's attention too because it's it's sort of the opposite story from yours, and it feels like someone who had made the full commitment to cricket. It absolutely was yeah. the thing that this guy very successfully had decided was going to be his life, mm-hmm. and then from one day to the next, it was 
it was taken away. But you know, on a human level, it's a it's a really painful thing to read about someone who who decided this will be me. Yeah. And sport is full of that. People who get injured, people who you know, people yeah. who do the opposite to you, and just put everything in that basket, and then it's just snatched away. And I think that that was what made partly what made the decision challenging is that you and people have said, well, you know, lots of people would have died to have the opportunity that you had and therefore well, how could you give that up so frivolously and the reaction to that is well I it wasn't me that like that I didn't I wasn't that person who who wanted it that badly and you know there are other things that I do want much more badly and so it's kind of even though I appreciate and understand that and I feel very sorry for James you know at the same time I think you know he spoke about my retirement um, during a commentary kind of session and and he was incredibly supportive and and I think he under he very much understood that people are different people's attitudes to cricket are different and um there are people who are fully into it and 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 it's all they want and and it's difficult in that situation and there are people who aren't and I fell into that uh, one last question I ask a lot of people who've studied here this particularly people who've studied politics so as a possible future career what about politics itself at the moment I'm not interested in in working directly in politics i mean i, I have no plans as politicians uh, <laughs> no i i you gen- no, i know you genuinely, uh, yeah i mean uh, you genuinely sound like someone who i'm much more to. i'm much more interested in academia i'm much more interested in the law probably more the barrister side of of the law so i think politics requires well the, the canvassing side of things i think is you know the, just the, the kind of the the practicalities of politics that i think are quite challenging but also you know, it's nice to be able to maintain a, a moral high ground for it, and then politics doesn't allow you to, to do that. But so. it is one of the ironies here, which is that people say about politics now some of the things that we've been talking about in relation to cricket, which is once upon a time it used to be possible to be a lawyer, yeah. a barrister, and you know, as it were, politics would be something that you did in conjunction with having another part of your life. And now, predominantly, you have to commit to it quite early. Yeah. It's a full time career. It takes out the possibility of doing other things alongside it, and many people regret that. I mean, it's, it's everything is becoming yeah. hyper professionalized, and sport and politics are not so different. I mean, because no, you, no, you, know, you saying I'd rather be a lawyer once upon a time that would have been the route in. Yeah, but you can also have your career taken away from you in a second, like Ed Balls found out. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. It's precarious. And he now and kind of looks like that. Certainly, that man at Glastonbury looks like a man who doesn't entirely know what he's doing with his life. Yeah, no, I, exactly. There's, there's kind of you know, and, and as you say, you look at Keir Starmer or, or someone like that, and, and it's worked out pretty well that kind of that route. And people, I think, assume that he has a degree of authority, not just because of his career as a DPP and you know a barrister and so on, but but I think it, it definitely allowed him to make that shift much. But more he is easy. relatively rare, isn't he? He's, yes, it's yeah. that. Um, and now politics is, and I think he finds it a challenge. Now politics is that absolutely full-time yeah. commitment. I was going to say as well, and I think that lots of the criticism that he's had about himself as a communicator is, is probably quite a surprise to him, mm. that it actually does require a whole set of political yeah, people say, skills oh, God, you that he sound hasn't like had. A lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, he goes on the Today programme and he's being bombarded with, like, yes, no question. Not quite, but, you know, and, and it's challenging. Yeah, I can, I can see why. Thank you very much to Zafar Ansari. This is a lovely way to start the summer for us with a different kind of conversation about politics. Do join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Mm-hmm.